Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting podcast. Visit our website at oalaig.org, where you will find several speaker feeds with over 800 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. The opinions expressed on the Light a Candle podcast are those of individual OA members and do not represent OA as a whole. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Janet. Hi everyone, I'm Janet B. from New Jersey. I've recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia. And by the grace of God, I've been in recovery over 37 years. And I'm excited to talk to you about my story, but even more important about this God who is alive and well and is still working miracles. Um, this week I read a line in a devotional somewhere that we can believe that God exists, but not that he matters. And that really struck me. We can believe that God exists, but not that he matters, because that was me. I had believed that God existed, but he was for war and poverty and children starving in Ethiopia. And what did he care about me and my food? Um, and God didn't matter. I never really gave him a thought as to what he wanted. So of course I was um, selfish and self-centered to the extreme. I put myself before other people. I didn't care about anyone else. And of course that created the perfect soil for this illness to come in and set up camp. And set up camp it did. Um, just a few of the things I did with food, I'm sure we can all relate. Um, I ate frozen food before I gave it time to defrost. My mom would buy things meant for the family and I would polish it off in a day. I would walk out of my high school to cross the street to the mall to go out and get binge foods. I remember one time baking cookies for a teacher who was sick and we were going to deliver them to her. And then my mom said, we can't, you, you ate too many. There aren't enough to give to her. Um, I tried the grapefruit diet, the cabbage soup diet, all sorts of diets and plans. And this was all before I was 16. Um, when I was 16, I think that's when God launched his first search and rescue mission for me and introduced me to Overeaters Anonymous. Meeting was right in my high school and I felt like I was at home. Um, I never went to Weight Watchers. I never did anything else. I never left OA. But for my first six and a half years, I was in OA progressively getting worse. Um, I continued in high school, never getting absent, went to college. I stole food. I stole money for food. And at my worst, I was binging and throwing up six times a day. Um, I had to have my esophagus surgically retightened because of the abuse I heaped on it. Um, and I was never obese at my heaviest. I was about 23 pounds more than I am now, but that was with throwing up six times a day. Um, I know a lot of people show their pictures and I just think if I ever showed, had to get a picture of me, it would have to be a zombie because I was a walking dead person. I was a compulsive liar and made up crazy stories like I'd slash myself with a razor and pretend I'd been mugged or raped and went to a hospital for a fake rape exam, all just because I, I was um, ill. And I continued acting this way and I continued binging and purging for my first six and a half years in OA. I would sit there and read spiritual literature while I was binging and purging. And I did what I was told. 
I had about 50 different sponsors during that time. And if they told me to do something, I did it. The problem was, um, unfortunately, no one gave me correct information. It was like if I said, I want to take a picture with my phone, and people said, oh, yeah, press this button. And it was the on and off switch. And so I would press it. For six and a half years, I would press that button and not take one picture. And that's how it was for me. Um, until God launched his second search and rescue mission to me in the guise of a woman named Donna who spoke to me at an OA convention where I was binging. I was binging at the convention and I heard this woman get up and say that she hadn't binged in a year. I couldn't string 30 days together. Most of, you know, there were days I couldn't make it to lunch and she had said a year and she introduced me to the big book. Um, that was the first thing. And the most important thing I think that the big book told me was why I couldn't stop binging, even though I desperately wanted to. You know, people used to say about me, oh, she doesn't want to stop. I wanted to stop more than anything, but I couldn't because lack of willingness was never my problem. Lack of power was my problem. And on page 24 of our big book, it says, that we are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We are without defense against that first drink. Well, first reading that is just really weird, like memory and consciousness and what does that mean? So let's break that down a bit. Um, they're talking about my memory protecting me. And truly, normally my defense against doing something dangerous is my memory. Let's say I'm about to touch a hot stove, the example the big book uses. Well, in my memory are stored all these data points telling me that touching a hot stove is dangerous. So if I'm cleaning up after dinner and about to touch a hot stove, my memory pulls the data points, sends a little thought running across the bridge to my conscious mind, says, stop, danger, hot stoves will burn you and then I don't touch the stove. Or an example personal to me, um, I have a really terrible cat allergy. So stored in my memory are a bunch of data points of cat-induced asthma attacks. So if my kids would say, oh, let's go to the pet store, someone invited me over and they had a cat, instantly my memory would pull those data points, generate a little thought to run across the bridge to say, stop, danger, cats will give you asthma attacks. So again, my memory keeps me from danger. So now let's talk about food. Um, I used to binge on these certain kinds of cookies when I was in college. I would always say, I'm going to have just one or two, but I'd end up eating the whole box of 20 and sometimes getting a second box. So in my memory were all these data points of how I'd promised myself I'd eat just one or two, but end up eating the whole box. So there I'd go again, about to go to the store, buy a box of cookies to just have one. And my memory goes in, pulls all the data points to, that says, mm, you said you're just gonna have one, but you end up eating the whole box. Generates a little thought to run across the bridge to stop me. Except when it comes to food, the bridge was broken and that thought couldn't make it across. My memory failed to hold me in check I had no defense against the first compulsive bite. I couldn't keep the memory green. I couldn't just tell myself to stay away from certain foods. 
when it came to food, the bridge between my memory and my conscious mind, my will was broken. And once broken, it could never ever be repaired. And I was hopeless, just like Bill Wilson, when he realized he was hopeless and said on page eight, no words can tell of the loneliness and despair I found in that bitter morass of self-pity. Quicksand stretched around me in all directions. I had met my match. I had been overwhelmed. Alcohol was my master. For me, food was my master and I had a broken bridge. So I had a first step, but a first step alone does nothing. Um, imagine like someone going to an oncologist and the oncologist saying, look, here's your PET scan. It proves you have lung cancer. Now make your cancer cells stop multiplying. Well, the guy would obviously be fired for malpractice because just because we really know and admit we have a problem doesn't mean we're going to solve it. My problem wasn't lack of knowledge or lack of willingness. It was lack of power. So here I was, I'd met this um, lovely woman, Donna, and she told me there were a whole bunch of them who had gone years without binging. So I was desperate enough, to, I lived in New York City at the time, to get on a train at Grand Central Station to go an hour and a half away to the meeting where she was. Um, and I raised my hand, it was a meeting where you could ask questions, and I said, I've been in the program for six and a half years and I can't stop binging. And this old timer said, you may have been going to meetings for six and a half years, but you have not been in the program. And your job is going to be twice as hard as a newcomer's job because you're going to have to unlearn all the wrong stuff you learned. Well, I was terrified of this person, but you know, a few months later, I was still going to these meetings. And one night, right before the meeting, I was behind a locked door, shoving bagel chips down my throat in a bathroom behind a locked bathroom door. And when I went to that meeting, I asked that person to sponsor me. And they told me later that um, got an inspiration, make it difficult for her. And boy, was it made difficult for me. Um, I was told I could not have any food in my apartment. I had to get a local food sponsor, pay for a cab for her to come to my apartment, check and make sure I had no food and pay for her cab home. And every day buy only enough food for, the net, for that day, for that 24 hours. And then people get to call in their food or text in their food, not me. I had to go to this woman's house every morning and show her my food. And then it was three subway rides to my office on the Lower East Side. And I was a social worker at the time. So, and my clients, if anyone knows New York, were in Washington Heights, the total opposite end of the city near the Bronx. So I had my food for the day, since I had to have all my food, in a backpack. So I'd have canned vegetables and a can opener for my dinner. Um, and it never occurred to me to say, are you effing crazy to my sponsor? All I said was, thank you so much for helping me. And I was grateful. And that night when I took that sponsor, I said a prayer. Okay, and remember I believed in God, but I said, God, I've always had fixed ideas of what you were like and what you want of me. I'm willing to admit it's all wrong and to start over and let you show me what you're like and how to worship you. And those bagel chips behind the locked bathroom door was my last binge. It was like a hand reached into my soul and yanked out the obsession. Um, I tell people who don't even have any belief in God that they can even lower the bar a little bit and to say, God, 
I don't know if you exist. And if you do exist, I don't know if you care about me. But if you do exist and you do care, you need some help. And then, um, so that was a good start. But then what I had to do, I had to start practicing what I knew. I had to start um, putting spiritual principles into practice. The first thing is I had to be honest. I was told by my sponsor that if I um, was dishonest, that's it, end of the relationship. And I remember the first lie I told, um, and I fixed it right away, but I remember sitting there sh almost shaking, waiting to call my sponsor because I knew I had to confess this lie. Um, what good is it to have a sponsor if, if I'm being dishonest? Because dishonesty is just like writing keep out God across my heart. So I confessed my dishonesty. My sponsor asked if I fixed it. I said, yes, and we moved on. And I was so selfish. I didn't know how to help others. So I just did what I could. I would make sandwiches and leave them for homeless people in New York City. Um, I just did what I could. I did my four step, I made my amends and I cleaned up my past. And, you know, I had some hard amends to do, but I, and when I first met Donna, um, she had asked me if I was willing to go to any lengths. And she said, um, are you willing to do everything in this book? And I said, well, there's this one amend I'm not willing to make. That was to um, an old boyfriend who I had pretended I'd gotten pregnant and taken money for an abortion, which never and kept the money. And I said, I don't know if I'm willing to do that one. And she said, are you willing to trust that by the time you get there, you'll be a different person? And I said, okay. And I was. By the time I did my seven step, God was starting to remove my defects of character. During all this time, um, you know, someone asked me recently, when did you first know, know that you came to believe in God? And I was thinking about it and I didn't spend a ton of time contemplating that. I just spent my time doing the work that I was given and trying to help others. Um, but I know on page 55 of the book, which I think is so important, it talks about what can give us spiritual cataracts. First, our book tells us that deep down in every idea of God, I love that. That means that when God created me, created us, we got two eyes, two ears, a nose, a mouth, and the fundamental idea of him. If God planted that fundamental idea of himself in me, it must be important to me. So that told me something about God. And the next thing is, let's see, on page 45, it tells us that um, the purpose of this book is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. Well, if this God wanted to solve my problem, that told me a couple more things about him. He's got to be smart if he could figure out how to solve my problems. He's got to be strong because this illness was stronger than me. So this God had to be stronger than the illness. And this God must care about me if he's going to waste his time with all that's going on in the universe to solve my food problem. So coming to see that God is smart, is strong, and cares about me. And then to look at the spiritual cataracts at page 55 tells me about calamity, pomp, and worship of other things. And to look at all the bad things that happen and to say, 
like Evie did when he went to build. I don't know about that. All I know is when I gave my life to God, things started working. And for me too, when I gave my life to God, things started working. So what does it look like to really give our lives to God? And the best thing I could hear is that we were out of the results business, that I no longer would do things in order to get a result, but in order just because I thought it was God's will. So the best example I can think of is parenting. Um, normally, I would say a goal would be to raise respectful children. No one could, would say that's a bad goal, but it's my goal. And it's radically different than saying my goal is simply to do God's will. So I might parent the same way, except if my kids aren't being respectful and that's my goal, I will start getting angry and fearful and probably start screaming and manipulating and doing things to reach my very good goal. But if my goal is simply to do God's will, I'll still try to raise my kids to be respectful. But if they don't turn out that way, I'm okay. It's okay. And I'm not fearful or frustrated or angry because all I have to do is focus on what God wants me to do and trust my kids and everything else in the universe to him. Um, to just finish up with what I think Canada is 605. Okay, perfect. Thank you. Um, I love the story of the minister's son and I love it for a couple of reasons. His whole story is found in the chapter, our Southern friend, the story. And he didn't just, he was told that to give his life to God, let me read it to you. Um, he saw what I, I call this the lunatic's prayer. There was a man in the asylum and he, the uh, minister's son said, how does prayer fit into this? And the, his asylum buddy said, well, you've probably tried praying like I have. When you've been in a jam, you said, God, please do this or that. And if it turned out your way, that was the last of it. And if it didn't, you said, there isn't any God or he doesn't do anything for me. Is that right? Yes, I replied. That isn't the way. The thing to do is to say, here, God, here I am and here are all my troubles. I've made a mess of things and can't do anything about it. You take me and all my troubles and do anything you want with me. Does that answer your question? Yes, it does. And suddenly he prays and he gets the miracle that's promised to us. Um, I'll close with my last favorite part is on page 100, where it says the things that come to us when we put ourselves in God's hands are better than anything we could have planned. And that was my experience. Um, shortly after getting into recovery, I got a job offer in New Jersey. I had no car. I had no place to live. I knew no one in OA out there. I went out to scope out an apartment, went to put up a sign on a community place. And a man there said, what are you doing? And I said, putting up a sign. I'm looking for an apartment. He said, I just put one up. I'm renting out the top floor of my apartment. Um, and my company, I was 23-year-old punk kid. Someone had just left the company who had a company car. So they gave me a company car. And at my first meeting, Lisa G sat next to me. I started talking. She started crying. I started sponsoring her. And I had someone to drive an hour and a half with to my meetings. Um, 
I'm happily married. I have two kids who are 18 and 19. I got them through the teenage years successfully, thank God. I have a job that I love and more than anything at all, I have a great sense of purpose and freedom from obsession. Um, in our book, it says, the age of miracles is still with us. And I wanna say it is true. The age of miracles is still with us. And the recipe for a miracle is right there at the end of the minister's son. It's crazy the way that they say it. They say, what is this but a miracle of healing, yet its elements are simple. They're telling us the elements of a miracle are simple. Like here's the recipe if you wanna have a miracle. Circumstances made him willing to believe. We see our own lives are hopeless. He humbly offered himself to his maker. Then he knew. And I want to say, I applied this formula. I've seen other people apply this formula. And it works. Because the age of miracles is really and truly still with us. And with that, I pass. Janet, thank you. Thank you so much. It's now time, there's time left for questions. If you have a question for Janet, please raise your hand in the participant section or reactions. Uh, there's a question from Lucy. Lucy, please. Hi, I'm Lucy. I'm a compulsive overeater. Um, Janet, thank you so much. Um, what tools do you use in your daily life um, that you, would, would it be of use to a newcomer? So I'll tell you what I ask all my sponsees to do. Um, I, 30 minutes a day, quiet time with God, prayer, meditation, spiritual reading, because this whole program is about get, getting a relationship with God. And we can't have a relationship with someone if we don't spend time with them. So that's the numero uno thing that I always say. Um, I personally spend more. I try and make it close to an hour. Um, of time with God, um, because that's just like a car needs gas. That's how I get my infusion of power. And then I tell my new sponsees to make a few calls a day to people in recovery so they can just have support, fellowship and support. People who are ahead of them and then people at their level. And what I try to do as they're getting through the steps is pair them up with someone who's kind of finishing the way they are. So they have like a recovery buddy going forward. Thanks. Our next question is from Steve S. Atlanta. Uh, hey, Janet, thank you for your, your share. That's excellent, really appreciate it. Curious about um, going to any length. How did you know when you were actually doing it that you were truly going to, because I don't know if I'm always going the extra mile or going to any length. How did you know that you were? I had a sponsor who I trusted and I just did what I was told. And I guess the way to tell that if we're not is if our sponsor is telling us to do anything and we're not doing it, then we're not going to any lengths. Thanks for that. Um, I don't see another hand. Am I missing a hand? Let's see. Oh. We have more time for questions. Ben, New Jersey. Hi, um, Ben S. Compulsive Overeater, Sugar Addict. Um, I heard that you came into the rooms at a very young age. Did you find when you first came into the rooms that it was difficult for you to hear the messages 
due to the age gap at all? No, I don't think so. I think, um, I think unfortunately, I didn't really hear a, a message of if you work the 12 steps and get a relationship with God, God can come in and remove your food obsession. I just heard a lot of like, do this, do that, do that, which might work for someone who's a moderate eater or a hard eater. But as a real compulsive eater, I needed a miracle. And unfortunately, I didn't hear that for my first six and a half years. Our next question is from Lauren in Vancouver. Hi there. Janet, thank you so much. That was wonderful. My question is, so uh, I totally agree that surrendering to your sponsor and just doing what you're told is is a you know a sign of full surrender sorry i don't know what that was um <laughs> what's it mean um okay so anyway so i've worked with i felt like when you said you had to have 50, you've had 50 sponsors i i thought i'd had a lot at about 25 so let's say you find someone who has what you want and of course everyone is human and everyone is imperfect and there are some that are healthier than others. And what if you get a sponsor whom you think you trust, and then your sponsor starts suggesting things that you believe that you believe really are kind of ludicrous? Like, I don't know. I can't think of an example. Um, how do you tell the difference between, like, I mean, because you know, I have had a couple sponsors who ended up not being emotionally healthy, uh, and I had I found that out. So how do you know? whether like because you know the things that your sponsor was suggesting to me are pretty you know pretty pretty heavy duty the the original things you talked about you know like call, mm -hmm. taking the food in and stuff so but you trusted her so how do you know when if you get a sponsor who starts making these things that might sound a bit outlandish if you are in fighting mode or if maybe the person you're working with is making suggestions that are not like from a healthy perspective that's a really good question. Um, so the first thing I would say is to check it against the big book. I mean, for instance, so what I was told, it may seem extreme, but yet at the end of um, Dr. Bob's nightmare on page 181, it's, he says, it never fails if you go about it with one half the zeal you've been in the habit of showing when you were getting another drink. I mean, I walked the streets of New York City at 2 a.m. with my rent money. To, you know, to get binge foods. So having to just walk my abstinent food to my sponsor, yes, it's extreme, but I, I went to extreme measures to get my binge foods. So that's the first thing I would say. And the second, I guess it would be helpful to have examples. Um, and I know sponsors do it differently. So maybe the best thing would be to go to a trusted friend, just one, not 50, because we don't want to be taking polls about what to do. But I have one example. Could, may I share yeah. it with you? Yeah. So okay. I work, yeah, so I start work, say, 3.30 in the afternoon, and my sponsor wanted me to eat my meals at the same time that she eats her meals, and her breakfast was at 5.30 a.m., and I don't, you know, that's 
too early for me. I don't start work till not, you know, she's going to work at 830 in the morning, but I'm not going to work till eight hours after that. And I thought, well, it doesn't seem to make sense for me to eat my meals at your time because my work, like I'm, I'm, I'm awake at totally different hours. And so that severed our relationship. So again, I, I don't like to pass judgment on what any other sponsor does, but I would just say like, I, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't make my, the requirements I, I mean, that I make generally have to do with getting a relationship with God. I do tell people they have to be on a food plan and weigh and measure till they're done with the steps for the reason, if you're an alcoholic, it's very clear, um, no alcohol, but with food, how do you know if you're abstinent or not? Well, if you have a committed weight and measured food plan, you know if you're abstinent or not. However, what that person's food plan should be, that they get to decide that. I just say, make sure none of your binge foods are on it. If you don't have a decent food plan, go see a nutritionist. That's generally what I do. So I personally don't start telling people what or when they should eat. Thanks, Dan. And our next question comes from Mia. Hi, thank you so much for your share. Um, could you talk a little bit more about the God's will with like how you maintain, you know, stay in God's will, like with life decisions, like when you were talking about your kids and uh, uh, raising, you know, respectful kids, like how do you cultivate or stay in that mindset? Okay. Well, I will qualify it by saying I, I um, had a lot of trouble staying in it when they were teenagers. So I'm talking about uh, best practices rather than what I was able to accomplish most of the time. Um, I think the first thing is letting go of the results because when I was tied to the results, there was a lot of fear involved. Um, and I, so I did a lot of fear inventories. And I mean, certain things we know, right? We know we have to be honest, we have to be unselfish. But a lot of it was getting rid of the results. So for instance, if I would make lunch for my kids and they would end up not eating it, well, I would get angry. And then I realized my job as a mom is to make the lunch. What they do with it is none of my business. Very hard, but that is what I had to strive to do. Um, and I realized a lot of, that I couldn't parent out of fear. And one time I did a fear inventory. I was afraid to discipline my 16 year old daughter because I was afraid if I disciplined her, she would get mad at me. And then once she was 18, I would never see her again. So I said, if I discipline my daughter, once she's 18, I won't see her again. Okay, then what, if that happens, then when I'm an old lady and my husband and son have died, neither of them are sick, by the way, um, and it's only me and my daughter, she'll be far away and won't invite me for Thanksgiving and I'll be all alone for Thanksgiving <laughs> and I'll be sad. So I saw, I was taking out an insurance policy based on my fear of something that would happen in the future and that prevented me from parenting. So to circle back, I would say, looking at fears um, because we don't want to parent that way and just trying to discern what's my responsibility and what's God's. Thanks. 
And thanks for those questions. I, we do have a couple of hands up, but we've run out of time.